Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Is going on with antibiotics. 
because recently there's been um, you know updates in terms of the whole antibiotic picture and um, doctors have been getting some interesting information in their inbox concerning antibiotics and uh, what antibiotics can really do and what they really mean and and some side effects that they might be responsible for. So let's take a walk and see what the doctors what the doctors are are, are getting. You know, what is their um, information and, and how does that inform what we as consumers, spectators, even doctors, you know, what, what what's going on here? Now, first of all, we have to get some background, basic background. First of all, what's an antibiotic? Antibiotic. Anti means against, biotic means life, so it's against life. Now, what life? That's a good question. Uh, a while ago, actually a little over 100 years ago, there was a theory that disease is caused by uh, micro, microscopic organisms, life forms you can see under a microscope. And you can actually document that they are present. And these microscopic organisms cause disease. So you can see then that a person is ill and you take a sample of the proper uh, fluid. Sometimes it's sputum, sometimes it's blood. These are called cultures. And you do this to detect the presence of these microbes that are causing infection. And so we can now scientifically prove that a disease was or was not present. And so this was, of course, a fantastic thing. Then it went a step further. So once we discovered microbes, and doctors could document the presence of these microbes, it was like, no, you don't have cooties. No, it's not the devil inhabiting you. No, it's not some spell that's fallen into you and possessed you or the devil. It is an infection. In other words, maybe it's struck, maybe it's E. coli, but this is scientifically we know it is an organism. We've now taken this illness out of the realm of sorcery out of the realm of superstition. We now have fact, F-A-C-T. All right. So look under the microscope, you see a microbe. Got it. Next thing that happened is antibiotics came along. And so anti-life, that means these drugs were against these disease-causing life forms. Now, one thing that occurred to me as a medical student, which I was a little concerned about, so of course I raised my hand and asked, well, now, these antibiotics kill life forms. Do they kill people, too? And of course, the answer was, well, these life forms are very little, and so the antibiotics kill them without killing this human being, which is, of course, very big. Sometimes the human being is harmed a little bit, and they get side effects, but people don't die from antibiotics, at least not directly. There was some mention made of resistant infections, but this was back in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, and it really wasn't a problem. So antibiotics kill these little things that cause these infections, that cause diseases, these things that we could see under the microscope. Once we got antibiotics, 
Now we can determine something called sensitivities. That means we can isolate the cause of disease, culture on a plate, and put a little uh, cardboard circle on the auger where the disease was growing, and boom, all the bad boys in the area of this disc would die, creating a clear spot. And this is called a zone of inhibition. And this is what we want to see. And this will help us scientifically pick which antibiotic would work. All right, so now here I was, medical student. I was gaining my confidence. I was like, yes, yes, this is good. And so what do antibiotics do? Well, different antibiotics do different things. Some interfere with cell wall synthesis. Some interfere with certain steps in the metabolic uh, life or functioning of the microbe. Now, lately, many of these antibiotics, fluoroquinolones, uh, in particular like Cipro or Libequin, um, also interfere or are known to interfere with things, very important things that happen in human bodies, like the synthesis or maintenance of tendons, causing tendon rupture. But, so there are some side effects. But what do they do? They kill the microbes, presumably without killing the person. And this was, like, awesome. So now we have a scientific basis for disease. We have disease. It's caused by a microscopic organism that we can see under the microscope. And um, we can scientifically determine that this antibiotic will work and that one will not because we do culture and sensitivities. Oh, I was relieved. I was like, yes. Now we can work with confidence. But what happened? Something happened on the way. And what happened was, we were told all this great scientific stuff. And then what happens when someone has an ear infection? What happens when someone has a fever? Well, you treat them with something called presumptive antibiotics. That means you go ahead and prescribe antibiotics without first determining what infectious organism is causing the problem or without determining what antibiotic is effective. And so this is called a shotgun approach. Sounds familiar. Um, so it's just a scattering willy-nilly. So all of a sudden, the science is out the window because you no longer have a documented infection scientifically proven by looking under the microscope and you no longer have an antibiotic that's scientifically proven to work because of this special little test of sensitivity. And so what happened then was we have this great theory of antibiotic use and antibiotic effectiveness, and then boom, um, it's applied like any um, superstition. Now, it's one more um, premise, is that a bad bacterium is always bad. And if there is such a thing as a good bacterium, they're always good. Um, in fact, when I was in medical school, I was taught that all bacteria were bad. There's no such thing as a good bacteria. And so we now have a situation then where doctors see a fever, they use antibiotics without determining if the fever is caused by an organism or which organism. Is it a bacteria? Is it a fungus? Is it a virus? Who knows? Which bacteria? And so the whole science application goes out the window. And so what happens then is whenever um, a fever is present or whenever it's believed the person has an infection, they receive an antibiotic. Totally unscientific. Uh, the next issue is 
Then came the issue of prophylactic antibiotics. These are antibiotics given to people who are known not to have an infection, but to prevent an infection that they might get. Again, fairly unscientific. Now, there are some cases like um, giving preventative antibiotics before surgery where they found that the giving the antibiotics does prevent infection. The question, of course, is does it prevent death? So, um, yeah, a little, little light on the, uh, on the theories there. So this is, this is where, where things are. Now, something else came up. Many of you have heard of the microbiome. What's the microbiome? Well, the microbiome is the 100 trillion living organisms inside every healthy person's body. And we talk about unhealthy, but every healthy person's body. And so you look at this microbiome, do they determine what organisms are in the, or among the 100 trillion microorganisms in the body of a healthy person? Shock, shock, shock. 100% of healthy people have E. coli. 100% of healthy people have staph. 100% of healthy people have enterococcus someplace in their body. And 100% of healthy people have something called C. difficile. It's simply there. Sometimes it shows up or is more obvious or apparent in other times, but it apparently is present in all human beings, healthy and otherwise. So this is, this is interesting. So we now have healthy people with these identified microorganisms but wait, but wait. When someone is sick, when someone has a urinary tract infection, a culture is done, and in most cases, the offending agent is E. coli. But wait, E. coli is a good guy. We know this because E. coli is in the body of healthy people. So how is E. coli healthy one minute and then disease causing the next? This is very confusing to our antibiotic theory here. Then we have staph. Staph, which is sitting on the skin of most people, um, causes no problem. But when antibiotics are used, it becomes resistant. This is called methicillin-resistant staph aureus. And this uh, superbug is the moniker or the name given to it, then it causes death about 23,000 to 40,000 deaths per year, depending on whose numbers you're looking at and whose definition you're using. Then there's Clostridium difficile, an antibiotic-resistant uh, situation, which causes something called pseudomembranous colitis, which means it causes the whole membrane, the intestines or colon, to separate from the colon, swath off, leave the body, and the person dies because the colon has basically left the body. And this is caused by exposure to antibiotics. Then we have enterococcus. Enterococcus is um, what the name implies. Entero means inside. Coccus means it's round. So it's a round bacteria inside the body, in the intestines. Generally does not cause disease, but if you use antibiotics, it changes to something called vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. And so what we have then is we have a collection of 
infections that are deadly that are exclusively created by antibiotics. So, and how many people a year do these things kill? Well, vancomycin-resistant enterococcus is about 30,000. Methicillin-resistant, about 25,000. C. difficile is about 30,000. Uh, so three, six, seven, so 85,000 deaths per year. That's a lot of deaths. Approximately 10% of all health-related deaths are from antibiotics. In other words, had the person never received the antibiotic, they would be alive today. Very interesting. So let's see what they're telling doctors about antibiotic use. Okay. This is pneumonia, and they're saying now a single antibiotic is as good as a combination for pneumonia. Just for your reference, it's now 2015, the year 2015. I went to medical school in the year 1979 to 83 and practiced medicine in private practice from 1992 to 2000. Now, when I was in medical practice, it was fashionable. I use the word fashionable, but a more precise term was it would be the standard of care to literally use Triple antibiotics for a person with pneumonia. Triple antibiotics. The doctor would prescribe three, one, two, three, three antibiotics. And this is without getting a sample of their spit, without isolating a single organism, and without doing a single culture. This was the standard of care. So now we're using antibiotics, three of them, as a matter of fact, in a case where we've not even established that an infection for which they would be effective is even present. Because again, the person could have viral pneumonia. So now we have um, a study done in a hospital outside of the intensive care unit. And they're looking at something called community-acquired pneumonia. And a strategy of empirical treatment, which is what exactly what I explained to you. Empirical treatment means you see the person and say, aha, you get an antibiotic. No documentation the organism is present. No documentation that the antibiotic you're contemplating is effective even if the organism is present. So we've got two degrees, at least, of uncertainty. And so a strategy of empirical, okay, empirical means non-scientific, you can take it that way, treatment with a beta-lactam antibiotic. Beta-lactam is basically penicillin, with a special ring attached, a beta-lactam ring, was found to be just as good as the currently recommended combination therapy. That means two drugs. Specifically, and this is what they're telling doctors, the single treatment strategy, which allowed for deviations for medical reasons, had results similar to those of the usual beta-lactam, that's, that's penicillin-based, macrolide, that's basically erythromycin-based combination therapy, or fluoroquinolone monotherapy in terms of 90-day all-cause mortality. Now, let's break this down to English. Beta-lactam is penicillin-based, and that's sensitive or is effective against a certain class of microbes. Macrolized erythromycin is sensitive to another group. Now, even when I was in medical practice, this combination was recommended. I remember as early as 1985, 86, I would use this and, oh, my God, the, the abdominal distress caused by the macrolide or the erythromycin part was just un unbearable. 
And then the diarrhea caused by the beta-lactam. Oh, my God. People were so uncomfortable. And of course, I was a community doctor at the time, practicing on the Indian reservation. Of course, the last straw for me was when I was at the grocery store, and this guy walks up to me and says, oh, my God, Dr. Dan, my daughter is having terrible abdominal pain, feels antibiotics you prescribed. I said to myself, that's the end of that one. So these come with a tremendous amount of, let's call it distress. Now, daughter, she didn't, you know, the patient didn't die. She's just totally miserable. And again, miserable for what? A situation where we don't even know if she's infected with something, and then we don't even know if she is infected, if the antibiotic would be um, helpful. And so what it's saying then is whether you use one antibiotic or two, 90-day all-cause death rate is the same. And also, using just one antibiotic did not lengthen the hospital stay or create more complications. So nobody lost any money. And these are published in the April 2nd Journal of Issue, the New England Journal of Medicine. So doing a Journal of Medicine, we take that as gospel. We believe that. We don't question that. I, I find it's best not to question such things. So, as I say, there's the continual debate on the optimal antibiotic therapy for patients that are hospitalized with community-acquired pneumonia, a leading cause of hospitalization and death worldwide. Stop right there. So, I had a medical practice in the 90s in Syracuse, New York. And that was when they were finally confessing that people were dying in the hospital of infection. People were dying of hospital-acquired infection. I said, holy cow. You mean if I send someone to the hospital, there's a good chance they could die of an infection that they get in the hospital? I said to myself, what business do I have sending anyone to the hospital who's already got an infection? That made no sense to me. No sense at all. So in my mind, especially if a person had pneumonia, I needed to make sure I treated them as an outpatient. Now, as I mentioned before, something called triple antibiotics. So for a bit, I would use triple antibiotics. I think one or two patients I did that in, and I just was not happy. Again, side effects, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, misery. Oh, forget it. So then what did I do? Started using turpentine. Yep, good old turpentine. I'd have them take turpentine one dose in the morning and then take um, hydrogen peroxide. And I wasn't fussy about the hydrogen peroxide. I let them go straight to the grocery store and use that old 3% instead of the 30% they recommend. But anyway, I used 3% way back when. And I would have them take anywhere from three to six drops in a cup of water and drink that in the afternoon. Amazing, amazing, amazing things would happen. People generally improve their breathing uh, within hours. And I had not one uh, treatment failure, and I did not have to admit anyone to the hospital for pneumonia. So in my 10 years of medical practice, I admitted not one person to the hospital for pneumonia. Did not do it. Did not do it. Again, I, I figured with all the infections in the hospital that people were dying of, if someone already had an infection, that was a reason not to send them to the hospital. So according to this study, this is published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, there was no difference in using 
one antibiotics or two antibiotics. Now, what they did not say is what about using no antibiotics? Exactly, no antibiotics. Well, that study wasn't done. And why wasn't that study done? <laughs> this is what they told me in medical school. They couldn't do that kind of study because, by golly, it would be unconscionable to withhold life-saving therapy. Yeah, life-saving therapy. So here's another uh, antibiotic update. Adult sinusitis guidelines are updated. Before we look for the update, let's take a look at the standard of care. What was the standard of care for sinusitis back in 1990-something? In 1990-something, if someone had sinusitis, by golly, they got an antibiotic immediately because it was the one case where we knew, we knew, we knew, even though no culture was done, that a, um, anti, that a bacteria was at the bottom of it, that an antibiotic would help, and the antibiotic was continued for at least two weeks, and you'd see them back, and if they weren't cured, by golly, another two weeks, see them back, by golly, another two weeks, and so on. I had some patients that came back for 10, 12 weeks. And finally, I shook my head and woke up and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, these antibiotics aren't working at all. These people are just getting better at the same rate they would have got better if I hadn't done anything. And then I stopped. I just stopped. I stopped suggesting antibiotics for any science infection at all. So let's see what the recommendations are today in 2015. Okay, so the American Academy of Otorhinolaryngology, that's uh, ENT or ear, nose, and throat. Those of you who speak English. It says sinusitis affects about one in eight adults. More than 30 million diagnosed and 11 billion in direct costs per year. And more than 20% of antibiotics prescribed in adults are for sinusitis. Why? That's because the standard of care is that for sinusitis, always antibiotics, always antibiotics. And so what does the Society of Ear, Nose, and Throat, what do they say? They say to try watchful waiting. That means to wait, use antibiotics. Let the patient fight the infection on their own. This is different. I said, oh my God, how enlightened is that? But then you take a look and it says, but what you should do then is use, give them pain medicines, all right, Maybe they'll just get some Tylenol over the counter. Then some topical intranasal steroids. That'll suppress their immune system. If they don't have an infection, we'll give them a full-blown one. Okay. And nasal saline irrigation. Those are the options. And it's the new algorithm, standard of care, decision-making uh, and action statement relationships. So I said, well, that's not too bad. Okay. So we can use saltwater irrigation. That's a neti pot. Call it a neti pot. And that actually resolved most sinus infections very nicely. And so then you look down and it says, well, several recommendations for management of chronic rhinosinusitis. It means if it doesn't go away or if it hangs on, now what they're saying is they're going to stop using 
So recommendation for use of intranasal therapy, which is a corticosteroid, and a recommendation using topical or systemic antifungal agents. So they're going to modify this and say, yes, you can use saltwater irrigation, which is, we know, good. It flushes up the excess toxins in case a lot of times this is due to toxins. It's not due to um, infection. And or corticosteroids. Corticosteroids make everything pretty much worse. Now, they made another um, update, and they said you have to confirm the diagnosis with objective documentation of nasal inflammation, which can be accomplished using anterior rhinoscopy. So you can look in there with some calipers, can be potentially painful. Nasal endoscopy, put a tube up there for a few hundred bucks, or can CT scan for a couple of thousand. So we've taken away 50 bucks or 100 bucks in antibiotics and added potentially $1,000 in diagnostic test. So of course, it's pretty clear this was funded by the Head and Neck Surgery Foundation because now they get to do more office procedures. But the point is, Bottom line is they determined that the antibiotics were not necessary, in this case, at any stage, that in all cases, um, irrigation, saline, um, salt water, that's it. But you don't need to do a $200 um, tube up the nose procedure in order to decide you're going to use uh water. So the sinusitis people have backed off of antibiotics, but have said, hey, can we, uh, can we please just do more surgical procedures and more invasive tests? Now we're getting to the meat of the matter. Do antibiotics raise diabetes risk via destroying gut flora? It is very, very interesting. Uh, I'll tell you a story from my medical practice. I had a patient who was um, a fire chief and at one job, a union boss at the other job, really just quite quite a VIP. And so he decided he was going to get his annual colonoscopy, which he did get, annual colonoscopy. And after he got the colonoscopy, he his bowels changed. Um, and all of a sudden developed kind of looser stool, and in about two weeks he developed adult onset diabetes. Poof! I mean, it was like like flicking a switch. Now, of course, this guy did not have a perfect diet, da 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 da. But of course, he believed that the diabetes was brought on by the possible contamination of his intestines with that colonoscope. And so here we have essentially confirmation. People who take multiple courses of antibiotics may face an increased risk of developing both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. In other words, it might be that type 1 and type 2 diabetes are forms of antibiotic poisoning. Wow, interesting, 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 interesting. Now, this changes the landscape for antibiotics. So now we've got not only the direct death due to infection with resistant strains killing 85,000 Americans a year, but now we have 
a situation where the antibiotics are apparently contributing to type 1 and type 2 diabetes, both of which we know increase a person's chances of dying, let's say, prematurely. So what's happening here is these antibiotics are looking a lot like, well, antibiotics, a lot like anti-life pills. So now there's a term, a medical term called over-prescription of antibiotics. What does that mean, over-prescription? Over-prescription of antibiotics means prescription of any antibiotics except the ones that I prescribe. So over-prescription of antibiotics does not in any way allow for the reduction in antibiotic use because of the pejorative over-prescription. So it's actually not over-prescription of antibiotics. It's just the prescription of antibiotics that causes resistant organisms and causes death. Now, I'm going to say prescription, but the real deal is use. So what do they say here? This team, led by Dr. Ben Borsi, a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Gastroenterology in the University of Pennsylvania, hey, that's the school I graduated from, Philadelphia, found that the risk of diabetes was increased by up to 37%, depending on the type of antibiotic and the number of courses prescribed. That's huge. So get this. You got a person, a human being, give them antibiotics, and you increase your chance of diabetes by 37%, which means you increase your chances of dying by at least 37%. Okay, got it. Next thing, on top of that, they get the standard of care diabetes therapy where the hemoglobin A1C is adjusted to a target of seven or less, which increases their chances of death by another 30%. This, this is how 880,000 people every year die at the hands of medicine because you have a multiplier on top of a multiplier on top of a multiplier. Uh, but let's see what the scientists at the University of Pennsylvania found. So they found the more courses of antibiotics, the greater the risk. And they um, got data from 1.8 million patients with acceptable medical records. So this is a going back over uh, medical records. And so they, they got rid of all cases with prediabetes or undiagnosed diabetes, and they took out all patients diagnosed with diabetes within 183 days of starting follow-up and with exposure to antibiotics more than one year prior to the index date. Okay. So in other words, a lot of people who might have been, who might have received, become diabetic as a result of antibiotic exposure were simply not counted. But that's okay. They did what they did. So they had 208,000 diabetic patients and 815,000 control, and this is what they found. Treatment with two to five courses of antibiotics is linked to an increased risk of diabetes with penicillin, cephalosporins, macrolides, that's erythromycin or any form of erythromycin, and quinolones, the nefarious quinolones, that would be cipro, libiquin. At adjusted odds ratios ranging from 1.08 for penicillin to 1.15 quinolones, the bad guy. So 1.15 means 
that the person's uh, frequency of getting diabetes was higher for quinolone use, 15% higher than had they never used quinolone. And this is if they received quinolones on more than two occasions. All right. The highest risk of diabetes is seen among people who receive more than five forces of quinolones. And this is what is given to men for prostatitis. Um, they receive several weeks of antibiotics, often quinolones. This is the standard of care. It's not overuse of antibiotics. This is what's recommended. At an adjusted odds ratio of 1.37, which means people who get quinolones, more than five courses of quinolone therapy, have a 37% increased risk of diabetes. And this is just plain diabetes, right? Diabetes. I mean, they have the same increased death risk relative risk of 66% more deaths because they have diabetes and if they don't have diabetes. We mentioned that in our diabetes uh, discussion. And so this person has now been converted from a person with a regular death risk to 66% more likely to die just because they took this quinolone. Got it. Um, interestingly, the researchers were not able to find an association between diabetes risk and treatment with imidazole, antiviral drugs, antifungal drugs, regardless of the number of courses. Very interesting. And so they repeated uh, the analysis, and still they got the same result. So there you have it. Now, the analysis was restricted to type 1 diabetes. The risk was increased only following exposure to more than five courses of penicillin or two to five courses of cephalosporin in an odds ratio of 1.41 and 1.63. That's huge. So in other words, your chance of getting type 1 diabetes, although it's very small, is increased by 41% if you're exposed to more than five courses of penicillin. Read prophylactic penicillin from my dental procedures, right? And it's increased by 63% if it's a cephalosporin that you're exposed to on two, uh, two to five courses. So this is, this is, this is uh, amazing. And especially type 1 diabetes is much more difficult to treat and even to cure than type 2. And all you have to do is just say no to antibiotics, especially and particularly um, penicillin. Now, confounding factor, disclaimer here, confounding factor is that type 1 diabetes has an association with dairy intake, and dairy intake causes infections that are often treated with penicillin and cephalosporin. So you have to tease out that association. But still, it's worthwhile skipping the penicillin and cephalosporin if you're trying to avoid type 1 diabetes. And again, it's, it's uh, five courses of penicillin does it for you and uh, two courses of cephalosporin. Awesome. Amazing. And so we have now, what's going on here is these antibiotics are shaping up to be anti-human life. In other words, there's no, there's less and less basis for concluding that antibiotics are saving the lives of human beings. Because what's happening is we created, we've taken good bacteria, the enterococcus, the staph, 
the C. difficile and converted them into deadly forms that people are dying of. How do we know they're good bacteria? Well, they're present in people who are healthy. So we know then that they must not be totally bad bacteria. So we're coming to uh, towards the end here. So it's uh, 17 more minutes we have. So I'll be taking questions in about uh, seven minutes here. So we're going to take a another look at um, antibiotics and their um, what they do and don't do. All right. So we're going to talk about, we're going to take a look at something called the microbiome. I alluded to that earlier today, but the microbiome is this collection of bacteria um, that sit in your gut, and they haven't, the scientists haven't figured this out yet, but I have deduced this, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm right, but I'll say what I have to say, is that these uh, organisms reside usually in our gut, but they often travel to other parts of the body on special assignments. And when they travel to other parts of the body on special assignments, they do a lot of very important things. And so what they're saying is uh, researchers are now beginning to understand the ways in which bacteria living in the human gut communicate with and influence brain health. So many neurologic and psychiatric problems are thought to be explained, at least in part, by immune dysfunction and inflammation triggered by poor gut health or a faulty gut, intestine, brain, axis communication system. And so the gut microbiota, that means the bacteria in the gut, have emerged as an important focus in the understanding of non-infectious disease. Well, wait, time up, time up, time up. If it's a microorganism, then it's got to be a communicable disease, right? But they're saying that the gut bacteria are an important focus in the understanding of non-communicable diseases. And now they bring up type 2 diabetes, which we just talked about, and cardiovascular disease, as well as disorders of the brain. Brain-related conditions place a great burden on society and the limitations of current interventions, limitations, that means ineffectiveness, ineffectiveness. The current interventions reflect the need for ongoing investigation into understanding and treating brain disorders, in part by exploring the close relationship between our biome, that means the bacteria in our gut, and our brain. Now, what happens when you give an antibiotic? You destroy part of the biome. And each course of antibiotics destroys more and more and more of the biome. And um, this causes diseases. And what this paper is suggesting is that one disease it causes is uh, mental disease. And so they have found difficulty categorizing this or documenting it or not documenting, but um, quantifying it. And so what you're saying is each gut microbiome looks different. So each person has a different microbiome in their gut. This is an important concept too. So you can't say this 
to the proper gut microbiome because everyone is different. And so the terms healthy and unhealthy used in this paper refer to instances in which gut microbes, that's bacteria, functioning, composition, or ratio may deviate from a person's individual-specific normal state. And so because there's no gold standard for the microbiome, then there is no scientific basis for objectivity. Not possible. In other words, I can't say, this is what your gut microbiome should look like. Let's restore it to that. It doesn't work. So the notion of gut mental health connection has recently started to gain traction. It's now thought that various psychological disorders, depression in particular, may be inflammatory disorders, and that the gut may be an important mediator of these conditions. Now, this is very nice, but I think this is reaching. A lot of what we um, call depression, people feeling sad, maybe wanting to kill himself, is a result of medication side effects and environmental poisoning. But nevertheless, uh, they found a role for gut microbiome. So in animal studies, microbial manipulation produce behaviors related to anxiety and depression. So they put certain organisms into an animal's intestines or took certain organisms out, then emotional problems develop. One study demonstrated that the anxious phenotype could be transferred via the intestinal microbiome between animals. So in other words, if I'm a nervous Nelly type and my feces is transferred to you, it can make you a little nervous too. Um, so the coping mechanisms for dealing with psychological stress appear to be programmed in early life. So this development may set us up to deal with stress throughout our lives with some coping mechanisms working better than others. And so the point here is the presence or absence of certain bacteria in the flora can create mental illness. And this is, again, another uh, damaging effect of antibiotics is that they destroy not only what's perceived to be the cause of a person's particular symptoms, but the antibiotic goes all over the body and indiscriminately destroys parts of a person's microbiome, causing um, imbalance and long-lasting or chronic illness. So I'm going to take a look over at my, um, so we're ready to go to questions now. So if you have questions, just click the um, button there. Here we are. Okay. All right. Let me find the button I have to click. Hi, three three zero three. You're a three zero three three. You're on the air. Do you have a question? Yes. Hi, yes. Doctor Dog. I have a yes. question regarding uh, like burning urine. It's probably a yeast infection. What would you recommend? I have a twelve years old daughter, and she is lately complaining. When she goes for urination, she has a burning sensation. So what would you suggest? Mm. All right. 
the question is what well first of all one question is what what could it be there's a couple of uh, possibilities we have to make a few um a few assumptions here so one assumption we're going to make is that your 12 year old daughter is, is not sexually active so we'll make that assumption um so the next thing burning on urination the number one biggest cause is not drinking enough water so you have to take a look at her diet and get rid of the soda pops, the fruit juices, anything that's not water, and replace it with water. And then you have to make sure she drinks plenty of water. So that's one thing. And that will probably help a lot. The next thing that causes this is constipation. And so you need to figure out if she's using the bathroom, if she's having regular bowel movements. If she is having regular bowel movements, well, I don't know what regular... A lot of people think once a day is regular, but if she's having burning when she urinates, she needs to increase that number to about three. And for a 12-year-old, vitality capsules would be fine. You could also make her some stewed prunes, a lot of options, but the point is she's got to release more waste. So the number one cause is uh, dehydration followed by drinking things that are not water followed by constipation. So that's treating the cause. If you want to treat the symptom, then you can give her something called D-mannose. And D-mannose simply creates a situation where the bacteria do not stick to, um, to her bladder and her urethra, and therefore they just leave her body and squish right out and she has no discomfort. So I wouldn't jump to yeast as, uh, as, as being responsible um, just yet. I would go with those other things and handle it that way. And in someone that's 12 years old, there is an excellent chance that that's going to work uh, very well, very well for her. I'm going to check into the um, chat room here and check out our questions. So the big thing to understand then is that the downside of antibiotics is absolutely, absolutely huge. Absolutely huge. <laughs> All right. So we've got lots of questions in the chat room. Now let's take a look. All right. What percentage of deaths are caused by antibiotics again? Uh, and these are not deaths at large. These are iatrogenic deaths. So 880,000 deaths a year are caused by doctors or medical care, I guess you could say. So because the person encountered the medical system, because they received medical care, they're dead. And so that number is 880,000. The number of antibiotic-related deaths just from resistant infections alone is 85,000. So 10% of that number is from doctors, capable, competent doctors prescribing antibiotics as instructed. Now, one thing that's really horrific is um, prophylactic antibiotics. But the problem with this is if the doctor doesn't prescribe them, you can see it's easily documentable that he didn't, and it's a prostitutable offense. Now, another thing I didn't mention is 80% of all antibiotics are not dispensed by pres prescription. 80% of all diabetics, all antibiotics are fed to livestock. That's fed to cows, uh, and they're treated for mastitis. It's fed to um, pigs and to get them to grow bigger and faster. 
It's fed to chickens to get them to lay bigger, um, better eggs. So all of the animal products that people eat are laced with antibiotics. And this is the ultimate source of these antibiotic-related deaths. Because many people, um, they, don't, they, they won't accept the antibiotics from a doctor, but they do eat meat and dairy from the grocery store. And so now we have the emergence of something called community-acquired resistant antibiotic resistance. These are people who have no records of taking um, antibiotics, people who have never been to the hospital, and they're getting antibiotic-resistant infections, and they're dying. Not in as great a number, but it's happening. Why? Because they are eating antibiotic-infested food. And the only way around that is to either raise your own and don't feed it commercial feed, because a lot of times the commercial feed has antibiotics in it, or find someone who raises meat near you that does not use antibiotics. And that's extremely important, very, very, very important. Um, countries um, like the Netherlands that have cut back their antibiotic use have seen a direct proportional reduction in death from antibiotic-resistant infections. In other words, when farmers cut back their use of antibiotics on livestock, the um, death rate in the population from antibiotic-resistant infections went down by the same proportion. Very, very interesting. Doesn't turpentine kill good bacteria? No. What turpentine does is turpentine sedates, stuns all of the bacteria. And then what happens is your immune system goes to a little sort routine. It says, you, out of here. You, stay. You, and don't know. And so it sorts out all these bacteria the way it wants them. And the reason you take the turpentine, or prefer to take it twice a week, is turpentine stuns the bacteria, the immune system steps in, does its work, and then it rearranges itself in the days in between. So literally, it allows your immune system to reformulate the microbiome according to its priority. So the um, turpentine is not like garlic. It's not like uh, penicillin that just kills everything. It's just not the way it works, especially at the dose of a half a teaspoon to a teaspoon a day. Uh, next question. In what cases would Dr. Downs recommend use of turpentine without changing the diet first? Um, you know, the person's at death's door, you know, they're, they're, you know, falling into a stupor unresponsive, then uh, that's definitely a case for uh, turpentine and castor oil off the bat. Um, some people um, have regular bowel movements and take turpentine because it helps them with their symptoms. But the benefits are just not nearly what they are when you change your diet. So I wouldn't recommend anyone um, take turpentine for the first time without changing your diet. But once you've got your body used to turpentine, and if you backslide on your dietary uh, program, yeah, you can use turpentine. But you've got to have the bowels moving. That uh, no compromise there. Okay, we have 90 seconds left, so I just want to let people know that uh, they should visit VitalityCapsule.com, check it out. Um, people who would like uh, personalized guidance on their concerns and avoiding the kill pill, 
they can go to vitalitycapital.com and click discovery session or one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, I can't help everyone, but I can. Um, that's a place to uh, to apply and uh, check it out. Okay. So gut bacteria secrete chemicals that go into your blood, then your brain, and affect your mood and behavior. Is this correct? Absolutely. So if your gut bacteria are out of balance, then there's an excess of certain chemicals going to your brain, to your blood, and to your brain, affecting your mood and your behavior, leading to uh, the kind of behavior you may never have thought you were capable of. Can you have hidden side effects from antibiotics that have not manifested yet? Absolutely. Antibiotics change the whole floor and the landscape. You have a whole setup for chronic disease. And so um, when you take antibiotics, it's, it's a pretty big decision. It's a very big decision. It can be a um, life-changing decision. Okay, that is it. And we will see you next week.